Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm joined by Gideon Joseph. He's the CEO at Transatlantic. And Transatlantic is... An agency, marketing agency, definitely. Oh, let me use Gideon's own words. They take narrative fame and Rolodex. And so they help mainly founders of early stage tech businesses to craft their narrative, something that's going to be really unique and authentic, and then deliver them fame so that they can capture their niche and also introduce them to lots of experienced people who can make that possible for them. That's their proposition, really clear. Gideon talks to me today about how he, I guess his early career, look, he worked for Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight, but there's no money in news. So then he found himself at ITV and Channel 4 working on Big Brother. Before he realized that Skype had an amazing opportunity to revolutionize broadcasting and how he got himself into Skype and helped create Skype as a verb by launching a interview product for Skype, which put joining me by Skype, as he says, put that in the homes of people all over the world and positioned Skype as the, as the number one tool in this new emerging VoIP space. So we talk about that. We talk about some of existing, his existing clients, some work he's done for former clients, and what it is that you as a business leader need to do. And it's interesting. I was writing a blog this morning about talk triggers, and this is exactly what some of the, the fame thing is around. What are these things that organizations can be doing that get people talking about them? So we have a great discussion today. I enjoyed it immensely. I'm, I'm sure you will too. Hi there, my name is Gideon Joseph. I'm the CEO and founder of Transatlantic. We're a communications agency that helps early stage technology businesses, both in the UK and the US, with a broad range of their marketing and PR needs. And today I am in central London, right next to the BBC in Oxford Circus. And how long have you been in business? Um, I've been in business for nearly six years. I worked for many, many years as a consultant uh, for Skype, which latterly got acquired by Microsoft. Uh, and prior to that, I was a journalist for nearly 20 years, uh, working across most of the major outlets of the BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and Sky. And what were you doing for Skype after being a journalist? Remarkably, back in 2009, I had just finished working and running um, Big Brother for my sins, which um, my parents were not particularly happy about, but it was a, a good experience into reality TV. And I was rung up by a lovely man called Jason Goodman, who was running an agency called Albion at the time. And he wanted to introduce me to uh, someone at a business called Skype. And I sort of think I knew what it was in that I'd begun video calling, I think. But it was very early days. And 
long story short, I got to meet them and I fell in love very quickly with the culture that was existing, which was broadly chaotic, but enormous hyper growth. The second thing was I could see an opportunity for innovative marketing for them. I wasn't a formal marketeer. And the innovation that we saw very quickly was the fact that satellite feeds and satellite trucks were extraordinarily expensive for broadcasters around the world. Give you some indication. When an American news organization uses a satellite truck, it costs them upwards of $20,000 per hour to use. So the insight was, oh my God, VoIP, as we called it then, could become a replacement and a massive help for broadcasters. And we then had this idea that we could turn Skype, which was already broadly being used as a verb, into joining me via Skype is. And we went around from that point on. I left Channel 4. I joined working with them. And we went along and basically sold Skype as a media solution. So the idea was that we would go and encourage and evangelize to news executives across the world that using satellite was expensive, using VoIP was cheap, in fact, free. While the quality of the satellite link or the VoIP connection was dodgy, it was worth the trade-off. And long story short, I ended up working with them. We've sold uh, the vision across the world. We ended up buying a couple of companies and creating actually a professional solution called Skype TX. And the whole idea was that this was innovative marketing by an aggressive, fast growth business because they weren't spending it on media advertising. They were integrating their content into something authentic, which was a remote contributor like you are talking to me. And finally, it was giving us massive brand exposure because all the news or executives or news presenters were saying, join us via Skype. So I stayed there, widened out the skill set, started learning everything from consumer facing marketing, commissioning TV ads, thinking about digital content. And it was a great journey. And in many ways, it was the most brilliant entry into fast growth technology startups. So fantastic to be in a position to create a verb, you know, that whole joining me via Skype and then and to Skype. And, you know, at that point where people are doing the hoovering or they're Googling for things or they're Skyping, then you've entered the consciousness of the punter. Yeah. In many ways, it was both a blessing and a hindrance to me, which was that the blessing was that I saw the challenges of hyperscaling uh, organizationally, culturally, the the need to continually sort of think about being agile before these words were even created. But I also saw some of the challenges around the fact that it wasn't particularly structured all the time, the fact that we were getting so much investment, there was just money being spent everywhere. We were already aware of the fact that some of the challenges with the product were going to take time to fix. And by that point, I think once you have that hyper growth and that moment of kind of acceleration, very hard to sort of pull back and start again or do fix things. And so we knew we were on an amazing ride, but with it came obviously some strategic challenges, which were the growth of mobile, which obviously Skype grew up in a desktop environment. The fact that peer-to-peer as a technology wasn't probably as secure or as, as necessary given as good an experience as it could have done. So there were some things along the way. But the fundamentals of defining what our narrative was, i.e. our messaging and our positioning, the fact that we thought very much about our audiences and our audience personas from an early age. In the case of um, Skype, it was obviously a lot of families and particularly women who were using Skype to communicate with partners who were away or children who were at university. 
And then also the ability to think about influencers before we even use the terms we called the moment makers was really fascinating. And so then where did you go after Skype? I slowly but surely was being approached by other startups, which were predominantly run by people who'd worked with me in the startup community, in the Skype community. So I ended up working at Microsoft, my company by that point, because I'd moved and become a sort of contractor, had a lot of work from Microsoft, but we were also getting approaches by companies who were effectively run by former Skypees. There was a huge community. People had gone to Evernote, people had gone to Twitter, people had gone to Jive, and, and there were VCs as well who in knew what I'd done as part of the community of marketeers that Skype built. And really, it wasn't me. It was actually someone who, one of my team, who turned around to me one day and said, hey, Gideon, look what you've done for Skype. By that point, we'd also helped SwiftKey accelerate their growth as well. They ended up exiting to Microsoft. Why couldn't you become definitively an agency or consultancy that helped early stage tech businesses grow quickly through some very specific services that we offer? And so in a nutshell, what, what are the services that you've now, that sort of service catalog you've put together? We use three words, one of which I hope you recognize because you're probably hopefully of the age where this term is still used or was used. We, we have three words, story, fame, Rolodex. Of course, the Rolodex to people who are basically under 25 is like, what's a Rolodex? I'm like, okay, it's a contacts book. And those three words distill what our B2B and our B2C clients. And the reason is this. The story of your business, as you know, is clearly critical because it both describes what you do and it also allows you to differentiate from your competitors. And it's fascinating the number of times that founders that we work with are brilliant at identifying a gap in the market. They're brilliant at selling to investors who are one audience, a particularly good narrative around how they plan to grow the product. But they're not particularly good at articulating that to an outside audience, perhaps of journalists. They've never had to do it. Many of them are product people. Many of them haven't ever had to be in an environment where they're talking to media, nor have they necessarily always thought about benchmarking what competitors are saying or thinking about where the business will go over a period of time. And then thinking about how does that all distill across collateral websites, other forms of press releases. So the story piece of it can be done in-house, but we're tending to find that, that founders come to us. And actually, after I meet with you, I've got a founder who raised a load of money. He's done a great job with the product, but he's struggling to get that distinct messaging. We do everything that would be really word-related. So we will help with a corporate narrative. We might help with refocusing what a website looks like. We might start writing some thought leadership for a CEO who's running around on a plane, doesn't have the time to actually absorb what he's thinking about, what's the paradigm shift that he's trying to create or he's identifying. So we'll start effectively creating a content engine for them. So that's story. And broadly, clients come to us and want that on its own or they want it with fame. And fame, unsurprisingly, is the act of trying to create reputational credibility and awareness of the company that you're trying to grow. And really, fame can mean different things to different people. In the case of Skype, it was clearly B2C ubiquity. We wanted everyone to know it and everyone to be aware of it. In the case of um, B2B businesses, fame also means the fact that you associate that brand with a set of values and attributes, but you actually go to market to drive top of funnel awareness because you can have the best product in the world, but if no one knows about it, you know, frankly, it's not that important or useful. 
And we combine that fame piece with thinking very, 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 very much about audience. We keep saying to the to the founders of these businesses, as I'm sure you used to do with, with when you were MD of businesses, like, can you please tell us who the key influencers and stakeholders are around decision making? And so everything that we do around fame might be wide. It might be around national media and national coverage. So at the moment, we've got companies ranging from a, a freelance, a digital pensions company, a, a on-demand babysitting app, a food waste business called Olio. And for them, they want regular drumbeat coverage in national media on television and in print. They want reactive stories, proactive stories. They might have data that they can triage from their own customers and we can turn into surveys to get them into the news. They want to become talked about. They want word of mouth. And we might combine that with influencers, whether it's celebrities, bloggers, who happen to either represent the business holistically or might represent some of their key audience cohorts. So in the case of obviously the babysitting app, they want to target mothers. And they go after a lot of mummy bloggers who reputationally will build their awareness. On the B2B side, it can be everything from the fact that we might be helping them create advertorials in, in outlet, in periodicals through to creating trade shows with them through to taking adverts out in key trades through to writing speeches frankly that they haven't ever had the time to do so that's story and fame and then the final piece is really rolodex and for a lot of our businesses they usually have a ceo and a co-founder who's a cto the ceo has a has some sort of marketing function but it's pretty limited they have some sort of limited biz dev function that's usually coming from the vcs and the angels who are investing in them and the fundamentals are that's very hard to accelerate growth and so what we try and do is add through our network of consultants and advisors who tend to be very senior which again from our point of view is bring senior resource around the early stage businesses because they end up making fewer mistakes, we might try and help introduce them to customers or potential partners who will accelerate their growth. But story, fame, Rolodex, without those three things, to me, you're going to struggle to grow your business. And it's interesting. So if you take, you say these are businesses typically without a marketing function or even a mature marketing function. And you're saying, right, look, you're early stage, you need the narrative, which you, without the story, you can't do anything. And they, and they absolutely have nobody in the organization with the skills to do that. And then the fame piece, what it sounds to me that you're trying to drive, instead of advertising revenue, they're spending money with you to drive awareness. Yeah. And I think, look, at the end of the day, many of them are pulling different marketing levers. Some of them are clearly spending on digital advertising and that whole category of performance. But the bottom line is, is what I think it comes down to, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, is that the entry into this world was, was very much around the fact that Skype, as one example, okay, it's B2C, but we had to build brand equity and brand perceptions and brand values. And in the case of Skype, it became being together whenever you're apart and the word was togetherness. My concern with a lot of early stage businesses that are VC backed particularly, I'm generalizing, but I think it's true to say, is that because the cost of acquisition of customers is so preeminent as a marker of success or not, they often will over-index on what I would call as kind of performance marketing metrics. And one of the things that we then say to the founders is, ah, but if someone came along who had more money and more budget than you do, how do you plan to compete against them? And the answer to that has to be, 
brand equity and brand value, which is the two things clearly have to go together. You have to build top of funnel awareness and also brand perception and some sort of brand equity alongside the marketing engine that might become more digitally led, and more performance led. And so in a way, we come back to this classic cliche of integrated marketing, which is all we're trying to say to these clients is, let's start from a position of having an integrated marketing approach to your business. And what tends to happen is they start there, they then fragment as they get bigger because they end up siloing and having head of comms, a head of influencer, head of internal comms. And then you have to bring them back together, which is how do we all work together? So while we don't do everything, we're not a performance marketing agency. We don't do digital advertising. We just do the bits that play to our skill sets. But our philosophy is all about integrated comms. And some of that can sit inside the organization and some of it can sit outside. And it's funny, isn't it? Because it, it's sort of a philosophical belief rather than a measurable thing. And so now when, when I did both Pier 1 and Rackspace, I spent what most people thought was a disproportionate amount of my budget on what we called then PR, which was regular coverage, earned media. And people would say, well, how can you measure the impact of that? And it's like, well, you know, this is, we just, if you don't do it, your advertising just costs you more. And, you know, you've got a window of opportunity to grab customers. And I just see that whole thing as sort of air cover. You know, if we've got a narrative and people, you actually can't get journalists and you as a journalist, you can't get journalists to write about you if your thing you're trying to get them to write about is actually bollocks. Yeah. Right. So you've got to keep coming up with stories and that takes effort. It does. It does. And, and, and I think also modern PR is not just about uh, media. I think the truth of the matter is, is that if you take LinkedIn as a channel, which I'm really passionate about and not because I worked at Microsoft for, for years as a consultant, as a contractor, I'm passionate because with LinkedIn, you finally got a channel that potentially does two things. It allows you to build thought leadership, which journalists can read about in a way that is really valuable. So we do a huge amount of LinkedIn posts for our clients where, where they haven't quite got enough to make a news story. We start building the engine of them saying, look, let's take AI and health or let's take a, an area around food waste. Let's build that story so that you, the founder, seem credible when you're approached by a journalist to talk about it. We also then use those assets to start pushing them to journalists and going, hey, have you been following this guy, Dominic Monkhouse? He's particularly good on you know, outsourcing your IT solution or whatever it is. And then, as you say, you start needing to think about what are the angles. And again, I think one of the interesting things is everyone is phenomenally busy in early stage businesses. And I don't underestimate how much they're having to do permanent fundraising. They're having to keep their investors happy. They're having to update their cap table. They're having to think about product innovation. So one of the, again, the challenges I make to the sort of VCs is, okay, you know what? You teach them to keep everything in house. But in my experience, and I'm generalizing again, most of the marketing function people that you end up hiring in early stage do not have the experience necessary to run what I would describe as a properly integrated marketing solution. Most of them haven't written corporate narratives for really successful businesses. They haven't got the phone number of the head of Sky News or someone at LBC or someone at the FT that they really want to get hold of. They haven't necessarily understood what it's like to deal with a crisis when, you know, suddenly your product is being scrutinized by a third party. And in a way, our argument is, look, we may not be your solution forever. And frankly, that's fine. But actually, if the opportunity exists where we can go in, help you grow to the next level, 
And then you can run on yourselves and then come back to us either as an ad hoc project where you have a particular product launch, where you might have some more fundraising. The opportunity then exists for us to have a long-term relationship, which actually delivers value. And I think that your point is right, which is it's hard to measure the value of PR. But interestingly, without it, I think you could end up, as you say, feeling quite a commoditized product because most verticals are massively competitive. And unless you either have infinite amounts of money or B, have some other channel that none of us have thought of, I think you're going to need it in the mix. Well, and also if you're, if you're a startup or an early stage business and you're trying to create a niche, you know, uh, some of the clients I work with are, they're number one in the thing that they do. Yeah. Certainly one of the clients I was working with last week has a very innovative product in the construction space, but they are replacing older technology. So they absolutely have to create awareness because without awareness, nothing that they do, they will fu- do in the future will make any difference, particularly if they want to launch into the United States, which is in their plan. But also if you can get into a niche and you can be number one in your niche, 85% of the revenue flows to you, which is, you know, which is what you did at Skype. You created VoIP, you owned VoIP. And without that earned media, without that, without that awareness and without that volume of quality narrative you just don't get it somebody else will get that instead yeah and i and i think you know one of the counters is businesses pivot in early stages they change and that's completely fine but part of what actually we think we do is we help the discovery process of working out whether their business model works because let's be honest if most journalists go don't quite get that business or we feel inside our tummy look we can't ring up a journalist and say this is really interesting The other thing I think is so critical, and this sounds obvious again, is the use of case studies to legitimize your products, either through anything you write or through media, is so critical. And one of the key things I say to these early stage businesses is secure marketing rights. I'd almost rather you didn't make any revenue from your initial case studies, but the fundamentals of give me some assets that I can use to go to a journalist or to write something credibly. Because let's be honest, if you write a piece on LinkedIn and it doesn't have any first party evidence, well, then you're just creating a sort of either a thesis or or a piece of advertising. But actually, if you create something that says, we believe that the nature of pensions is broken, here are some customers who have used it and here's their point of view on it, you suddenly get this richer deeper kind of experience that I think becomes very credible and actually allows you to go to market more aggressively. And I think that a lot of early stage businesses do do a lot of this good stuff. But to my point earlier, it's a hell of a lot of heavy lifting if you really want to do it well. And I think actually the other thing is this idea of it's probably why they use you as a coach, distanciation. Sometimes outsiders just coming in and looking at your business can sometimes see things you can't see that are very close up to your face. And so a lot of the stuff we do around messaging and positioning can often come through the fact that you need people who don't have a vested interest, who don't necessarily know what your business is about, to come in and observe it and to do the hard yards of really credible desk research against your competitors. Because that's the other area that I think lots of early... Just have you benchmark your language, your mission, your vision? What are your competitors all saying? And I think it's probably easy to say, oh, they're not saying the same thing. And then you really look at it and you go, well, it's pretty similar. And actually, how are you differentiating yourself? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, a number of the tools I use is is to try and get clients really clear around core customer. And, and you know, it became obvious to us at Pier 1. As an executive team, we're talking about the customer. 
and everybody around the table had a different image in their head of who that customer was. So we went off and did some work to to work out clearly who our customers were and why they bought from us. And in fact, specifically those that would drive the revenue to double the business in in sort of five years. And it's amazing how audience-led marketing is projected as this new concept. But to me, it just, again, as a non-marketeer marketeer, it's common sense. Who are your addressable audience? Who are the ones who are likely to be influencers around a decision? And then who are your core decision makers, particularly in B2B businesses? And again, that's partly why we've done a lot of work recently in LinkedIn, which is, you know, this is a product that allows you to map the kinds of key people you want to target advertise against them and gives you an an unvarnished channel in which you can publish content. Well, if I was an early stage business and I wanted to put money anywhere, I'd be going pretty good that I've got this tool that almost everyone is on or more and more people are joining. And actually, you know what, in the way that, that social took off as a way of talking to large audiences, actually, you know, LinkedIn at this very moment is perfect. It's not saturated. It's got lots of good, rich content on there. I'm sure at some point it will become overly exposed and everyone will go, oh, you can't get to anyone on LinkedIn. But for now, I think it's hugely powerful. And we see it as a journalistic tool as much as we see it as a lead gen tool. And so how do you, how do you have clients, more specifically, how do you have clients using LinkedIn then? To give you more specifics, on the story side of things, we might get a company that comes to us and says, I want to buy you, pay a project for you to redo my positioning and messaging. Fine. We might get a company comes and says, we want you to do PR for us. Fine. With LinkedIn, what we're getting a lot of is B2B businesses who are coming to us saying, we know our audience. We think we know who our customer is. We only have me as the CEO and the founder and maybe one other doing sales. And we don't have time to do the, co- the content writing. And so what we say to them is, well, look, let's give us six months. We'll create a monthly piece of content for you in your voice that's very much around the kind of key drivers that you think will educate customers. We then create for them shorter pieces of content. We call them wisdom notes that tend to be shorter forms of kind of content that can be dropped in through their LinkedIn channel. We then get a mapping exercise done of their audiences. So in the case of one company, they want to target chief financial officers and chief strategy officers within the publishing sector. So we've drilled down into them and we've addressed that there might be, let's say, 15,000 of those people across Europe. And then we put some advertising against those key individual names and those key individual targets. So really all we're doing, if you think about it, is doing the same thing that you would do if you were going to build out a normal sales pipeline, which is you've got the names, you've got the audiences you want to address, you've got an opportunity to sell them something, which isn't hopefully an overt sales message, but something that genuinely prompts their interest in having a discussion with you. And you're doing it, frankly, in a low cost way. And that to us is proving incredibly effective. It's measurable. We can see how many people look at the post. We can look at targeting using some of LinkedIn's tools. The advertising on LinkedIn is relatively cost effective at this moment. And actually, we're saying to a lot of our customers, look, let's not do B2B PR. We can put you in a verticalized piece of press. We can pay for you to do an advertorial in insurance times or whatever it is. But actually, maybe this LinkedIn engine is worth trying for a couple of months and seeing how we do with it. And you're getting good success there. Yeah, we are. And I think the 
of all the scalable products that we're selling at the moment, it's one of the most interesting products. And interestingly, talking to um, one of the sort of advisors to the business, he was the the chairman of Taneo, big public affairs and PR company. He he looked at this and thought, this is an interesting product. It's the long tail of small and medium-sized enterprises who are looking for a new way to really look at B2B comms. And often they're doing bits of it. So there might be a head of PR who's writing a speech for the CEO, but he doesn't see or she doesn't see how that piece could be reinterpreted through LinkedIn and help sales as well. So, you know, the interplay between sales and marketing becomes absolutely critical. And also, I think from an early stage is integrated again. So if you think about CEO and a co-founder, well, let's use LinkedIn as a way to bind us together. It's a glue that sits us together. And one of the things, Dom, as you probably know, is it's amazing how quickly these things pull apart. Oh, we've got a head of sales, we've got a head of PR, we've got a head of marketing, and none of them start talking to each other, which is kind of a conversation for another day about how companies grow and then become less integrated rather than more. You know, I, look, I do a couple of things with clients. Mostly I get them really clear on strategy and then I get everybody aligned and then I help the execution to be drama free. But all of that is actually around how do you make sure that those people are pulling in the same direction? How do you make sure it's integrated and not people working in silos to their own agenda? Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the joys of early stage businesses and why I love it is if I showed you my phone, I've got about eight WhatsApp groups, all with clients. Why? Because there's 10 of us in the group. It's got founders, it's got heads of product. And all we're doing is riffing in real time. There's a brilliant company, Olio, which is a food waste app, had a large amount of exposure through their own advertising, through RPR, run by two brilliant female-led executives. And all I can say is they're a case study in two leaders who have had experience of working in companies previously. Um, one of them used to be the MD at Dyson but also how they've realized how working in an integrated fashion, just you move at speed. We move at speed using WhatsApp. The chat in, our, in this WhatsApp group is filled with, right, let's do it. Let's get on with it. Let's move. Here's, here's the next thing we're going to do. And our PR and comms approach is so agile. And it's not that it's not strategic. There is a comms plan underneath all of us, all of this. We're just executing against it in a way that doesn't involve more than half an hour stand-up meetings, me having you know, monthly catch-ups with the CEO and just a realisation that actually this momentum and everyone gets into the same way of working. I'm sure that will hope, will change when they become a billion-dollar business, but I'd love to think it wouldn't. I heard, I don't know which one of them it was, but I heard one of them speak at the Do Lectures last summer. Yeah, Tessa, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I thought she was very, very impressive and what a fantastic, what a fantastic product. Yeah, and it's, it's brilliant and they're open to acknowledge they haven't yet necessarily figured out every element of their business plan, but they are sensible enough to know that they've surrounded themselves with, I hope, people who've had experience of growing consumer brands, people who think forensically about audience, taken lots of opportunities to be part of a conversation around a sector. And they are definitely obviously part of a rich conversation around sustainability and food waste. But the fundamentals are all of these businesses broadly tap into a larger paradigm. And in a way, people say to me, why did you move from journalism into early stage businesses? And the answer is because early stage businesses represent the closest I can get to the intellectual nourishment that I might have got when I was on Newsnight. Because on 
right? You think about paradigms of debates and discussions. You know, if you're working for Jeremy Paxman, it wasn't a, a specific conversation with a politician. It would be how do you ad- address a philosophical issue, social care, taxation, the health service, all of these themes. And in a way, when you morph that onto early stage businesses, they're addressing some macro meta theme that actually has significant societal impact. And the question for me becomes, how do we tell that story and then unpack it in the real world? So peer-to-peer mobility and car sharing. We have a great client called Car and Away who are fantastic. Olio, I've mentioned. Babysitting. Well, babysitting at, at first doesn't look like a big macro theme, but actually what you're really tapping into is trusted services. Who do we allow to come in and out of our house? And that's really interesting. Do you end up becoming a marketplace for plumbers, for decorators, for gardeners? As I mentioned, we've just launched a product around freelancers and pensions. Well, pensions, you know, as a big area for disruption, like banking was pre-Monzo, is a huge area that I think will become a battleground for digital solutions. We've had companies in health who are looking to deliver AI solutions into the health service. And what does that mean? Well, clearly it means issues around, you know, unskilled workers becoming less valuable to the NHS or less needed. How do you deal with those ethical concerns? So one of the other areas that we, you know, we try and think about is what's the moral and ethical framework for these businesses? Because lots of the founders totally get that there are issues around particularly their AI product, but they haven't dug deeply enough into truly the ethical and moral frameworks of their businesses. How does it impact workers? Will people become de-skilled? What does it mean for blue collar workers who might not necessarily keep their jobs? And these are massive reputational issues that if you get as big as Skype, as you know, become enormous challenges that you have to think about and have considered and written down and thought about in terms of how you communicate it to the outside world, because otherwise they will come back and bite you on the bum, for sure. Yes. As you were speaking, I was struck by the fact you said earlier that your mother wasn't that happy that you were on Big Brother. (laughs) No wonder if you used to be on Newsnight. Yeah. She felt your career was going in the wrong direction, I guess. The the truth was, was that ultimately, and maybe I probably didn't explain it, clearly enough earlier, but fundamentally, I was always interested in the interplay between ideas and commerce from an early age. And in a way, being in news was all about ideas. There's no money in news whatsoever, but there was money in Big Brother because the format was being sold around the world. Luckily, I had some brilliant bosses at ITV and Channel 4 who allowed me to really go off to business school and, and study. And in a way, what was happening was that other than starting my own production company, which was a hard business to grow because ultimately there's lots of them, I was really beginning to obviously think about at a subconscious level, how do you turn ideas into big business? And actually, rather than doing it through the lens of television formats, Big Brother, I'm a Celebrity, The X Factor, I was actually thinking probably about it in relation to early stage businesses. I think the thing that I realized also was that I was not a founder myself of an idea. I liked talking and spending time with other people's ideas. I wasn't the person who would sit in a room and go, oh, I'm going to come up with a new popcorn or I'm going to come up with a new VoIP solution. And that was just a realisation that I had. I liked shaping and helping other people's ideas to grow. And I guess in that regard, we're very similar. I just find it fascinating to work with clients and help them polish, polish an idea or help them see the bit that they're missing, the thing that, the thing that either... They don't realize they're as amazing as they are or the thing they think is great, which actually isn't. Exactly. You know, and, I, and either of those two revelations can make a huge difference to a client. 
Yeah, and what I love is when they see it themselves. And in the case of Olio, you know, they're branching into a more enterprise-centric space potentially in the next year or so. And I think to have that insight and to drive that forward is is great. But um, in terms of you asking me what what could I have uh, what would I have done differently or what would I have learned, I think I, my biggest learning is probably that I I look at a lot of young founders now. And I do envy them because I didn't start doing this until my really my mid to late 30s. And while the trade off is you had experience, you had credibility, you have legitimacy to go into startups now, there is a bit to me which is like, my God, I missed the boat. Why didn't I do this earlier? And I wish I had. And I think, you know, there is no doubt in my mind that there were a wave of great companies that were created and where I would love to have been part of them or shape them. And yes, I was I was part of Skype, but I think I missed that sort of 2010 to 2015 where, you know, you could just, there was just lots of opportunity to raise money, to get new, you know, see new companies that were coming up like SwiftKey, as I say, who ended up doing you know, really, really well. And I suppose I love it so much, this sector now, that I wish I'd probably got into it earlier. So I wish I'd had my insight at an earlier stage. But, you know, there's nothing I can do now. I've just got to accept that I've got to keep working for a bit longer. Gideon, that's brilliant. Um, along the way, you must have read some interesting books that, that changed your life. What, um, you got a few that you could share? Two most recent ones are, I think Satya Nadella's uh, autobiography is a brilliant book about a refreshing and reigniting of a large corporation. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the way in which Microsoft moved from a Baumer-led organization into a Nadella-led organization, as in the acquisitions of different companies by Steve Baumer around Nokia, mobile phones, and the realization by Nadella that, that really at its heart, Microsoft's an enterprise company and dialing up the cloud, dialing up Power BI, dialing up office. So in other words, a kind of refreshing of Microsoft that really was actually taking it back to its roots, that this is a company that fundamentally isn't a B2C business, it's a B2B business. I No, I think you're absolutely right. But what I found fascinating as a, I've never worked at Microsoft, but you know, in the Gates days, smart people went to work at Microsoft. And then towards the, in the Barmer era, the people that seemed to go to work at Microsoft were people that frankly i didn't rate yeah yeah now smart people are going to microsoft and 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 it's very exciting again yeah so i think that's a great book obviously he also loves cricket which is always a great um in terms of if you know you want to understand how he used his kind of strategic thoughts around cricket and implemented them into the c-suite of microsoft the second book is actually just coming out it's a wonderful read it's called reimagining the american dream by kevin scott who was the cto of linkedin and now is the cto of microsoft it's a book written by a good friend of mine called greg shaw who is Truly, if you any of your listeners want someone to write their definitive autobiography of their lives, he's the man to talk to. He wrote a book with Kevin that really addresses the issues that we've outlined already around ethical and moral concerns of AI, but particularly through the lens of rural communities. It's going to impact urban situations, but it's going to absolutely also impact rural communities. Crop spraying, the management of and movement of cattle, the way in which we can predict harvests, all of these things have enormous impacts, both positive and negative. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book about how rural communities will be impacted by AI. I highly recommend it. The final 
is probably um, the most important book that I ever read. And again, I read it before I ever went and saw a VC. It's Ronald Cohen's The Second Bounce of the Ball. Second Bounce of the Ball is a very simple thing, which I think is a very useful way to describe to leaders about the future of their business. The most successful business leaders don't think about the first bounce of the ball. They think about the second because the short term can almost always be navigated or seen. The second bounce of the ball is where the real visionaries come in. Where does the ball bounce second? It's the person who doesn't see mobile but sees AI. It's the person that sees, frankly, mobile phones before he saw desktops. It's the person who can see that bit further in the distance. And all the best VC investors I've met see the second bounce of the ball. And that takes us back to the paradigm change. What do they believe the second bounce of the ball will look like? Is it a change in consumer behavior? Is it something about the way we live our lives together? Is it something about the way that we consume a particular thing? And Ronald Cohen's book describes how he would analyze a potential investment opportunities through thinking about the second bounce of the ball. So, Don, when you get a ball next, the first bounce is what they're doing today and for the next 18 months. The second bounce is where they need to be in 24, 36, 48, 72 months. And that's where I think the real genius lies in that book, because it means that I end up being able to describe to the founders what their short, medium and long term goals are. And have they really thought about the second bounce of the ball? Because that's where success is. It's not in the short, it's in the long. Gideon, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.